Grab your Bibles if you would. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, this morning. And uh, we've been going through this series called New Life, and, uh, and, and hopefully over the last couple weeks, it might have been a little confusing those first couple weeks. We're like, why is this series called New Life? But over these past few weeks, I think you've begun to see that, and you'll certainly see that in our passage this morning. Uh, before we dig in, I just want to uh, bow before God, bow our heads before God, and, and pray. So let's do that. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Thank you that we have it, that we can read it, that we can uh, learn about you and learn about us and learn about our relationship to each other and our relationship to you. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, our minds would understand well what you would have for us and that our hearts would embrace that message uh, into our life. And I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we got a little struggle with the microphone and I think we got it fixed, so I won't... Uh, burden you with that today. But um, I want to tell you about William Harvey. William Harvey was a uh, 17th century physician, uh, medical doctor, and uh, he was one of the first to describe the circulation of blood in our body accurately. Before that, they had kind of a different idea about what happened, and and, and he he came up with this revolutionary idea of this understanding of of blood throw, flowing through the heart and, 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 through, and through the brain and the rest of our body. And, and it, was, it was considered nonsense at the time. As a matter of fact, the prevailing idea was that our liver actually created blood as it took in food. So it would take in food, it would create blood, and then it would, and then it would flow through uh, the lungs and the left side of the heart. That was the, that was the prevailing theory of, of the time. But William Harvey comes along and he, he begins to say, no, I, I don't think it works that way. I think it actually works this other way. And he, and he, and he writes about it. He gets published and, and, and they all start to read it. And they all basically ridicule him. They make fun of him. They, they, they say, you're crazy. This is not how this, how this works. This, the, the, the system does not operate that way. As a matter of fact, um, there were many who began to say this. They said they would rather err with Galen. Galen was the guy who came up with the the prevailing theory of the time, they would rather err with Galen than proclaim truth with Harvey. It's interesting, right? Because we begin to think about that, we hear that, and we go, why would anybody ever do that? Why would anybody ever consciously make a decision to make an error and to continue to proclaim what is not true instead of what is true? But the reality is we do it all the time. Our human nature is we want people to like us and to love us and to accept us and those kinds of things, right? And so, so there becomes these times where we might even look at a situation where we go, you know, this is probably actually true, but I'm just not going to upset the apple cart, so to speak, right? I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to whatever, fill in with whichever cliche you prefer here, I'm not, I don't want to upset things. I don't want to change things. Because people might not like me. I might be odd. Uh, the, the culture around me, my peers might look down on me because, because I'm proclaiming something that, that they view as not true, even though I think I, I, I know better. And so they'll consciously make a decision to stick with what is wrong. As a matter of fact, sometimes we even lie to ourselves. We convince ourselves. We say things like, well... You know, this is the prevailing methodology, or this is the prevailing idea. So I'm just going to go with this because I'm probably wrong anyways, and they're probably right. So we begin to lie to ourselves. Now, some of that reasoning isn't the worst in the world. There are times when, when everybody else thinks one thing and we think something else. 
that maybe we should stop and pause and kind of go, I'm not so sure, maybe I need to reevaluate. There's certainly some, some moments of caution that are valid from time to time. But when, we're gonna look, when we look at today's text, here's what I think we're going to find out. We're going to find out that confessing Christ means nothing if it is not matched by embracing a crazy new life in Christ. I want to, I want to let that sit just for a second because I, because I chose those words very purposefully. I wasn't, being, I wasn't throwing extra adjectives in just to make it nicer or make it more extreme or things like that. I want to read it to you again. Confessing Christ means nothing if it is not matched by embracing a crazy new life in Christ. A crazy new life in Christ. Jesus does not call us to live a life the world loves and respects. He doesn't call us to follow our own ideas, our own preferences, our own pleasures. Jesus doesn't call us to to a life that lives according to the morals, values, and standards of the rest of the world. Jesus is calling you and I to a crazy new life in Christ. To a crazy new life in Christ. In his letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. He says, For we know that if the earth, earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Jump down to verse 5. It says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. As we rounded out the the message last week and we got towards the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there was this idea of of, of eternality that that, that Paul was trying to drive home, that our our eyes needed to be focused on on a hope of things that are to come, right? The glory of of God that is yet to be revealed, and, and that's where our eyes ought to be. And he kind of continues this, this theme of eternal perspective as he opens uh, chapter 5. We strive looking forward to what is to come, the glory of God, but now he talks about tents, and he talks about houses. He, he frames it a little differently, and, and, and these bodies are but tents. And as you, as you age, you begin to realize more and more how fragile they are, Right? And, and how our joints don't work like they once did. And, and, and things begin to break down because they're fragile. They're like tents. But we look forward to a house. We look forward to something permanent. Something that will last. And, and that's where our hope is. Knowing that that is yet to come. And, and so Paul uses this imagery to kind of remind us once again. But while we are here in this tent, we wait. We groan. The text says, we long for what is to come. And I wonder how often we forget about what is to come. And how often we just kind of go day to day and we we forget that there is something better. There is something that we are looking forward to. We kind of get in this world, I think, where we just just get caught up in the routines of our daily life. And, And certainly routines can be good and beneficial. I'm not saying we shouldn't have routine. But I am saying that sometimes we can't see past the routine of what happens day after day after day after day. We kind of begin to think that this is all that is. 
Or at least we begin to live that way, right? We, we, we begin to, to hang on so tight to the things of this world that we forget there is a better world, a more glorious world, a more permanent world that is yet to come. And God has promised us that. And we look forward to that. We have to long for that. It's, it's like an engaged couple, I was, as I was thinking about it this week. And, you know, we're engaged. As a matter of fact, we just did a wedding not, not that long ago here in uh, Michelle. Uh, and Mel got married, and, and, and it was great, it was wonderful, it was a great celebration. But when you're engaged, when you're, when you're waiting to get married, you long to be with that other person. You long to be in their presence day and night. You long, you long to, to share things with them on a level that you haven't shared things with them in the future or in the past. You, you, you look forward to what is to come. And, and in many ways, that's what we too ought to look forward to. We are, we are the bride of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, waiting to be united to the groom, waiting to be in God's presence, to see him face to face. What a glorious day that will be. Amen. You know, one of my favorite songs of, of all time, and maybe you're already thinking of it, is, is Mercy Me, and, and, right? And, and, he, and he talks about, you know, Barb talks about how, how he stands in God's presence. What's he going to do? Is he, is he going to kneel? Is he going to stand and praise? Is he going to worship? Is he going to be silent? What will it be like to be in the glory of God, to be in his presence, unmitigated by the sin and the fallenness of this world? What will that be like? be amazing. It's like an engaged couple longing to be united, only it's much more significant. Verse 6, Paul goes on, he says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And Paul is is, is, is confident, and he's confident specifically in his ministry, right? He, he's, he's writing to Corinth, and they've had these back and forth. They've, they've had these conflicts, and Paul's working through these conflicts with the church, and, and, he, and he's, saying, he's saying, look, I'm confident, but it's not a confidence in me. It's not a confidence in my skill. It's not a confidence in what I can do, but my confidence is in the God of the universe. My confidence in what is, is, is in what is yet to come. He's looking forward. He's longing for that permanent dwelling, that permanence of being in God's presence. He longs for it, and he looks forward to it. As a matter of fact, it was interesting that somebody just, uh, just recently asked me about a couple of these verses, and, and I don't know that they knew they were in, the, in a passage coming up in the sermon. Because we hear these a lot, right? We, especially verse 7, where it says, For we live by faith, not by sight. And, and that talking about uh, always confident then that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And that whole idea of what does it mean to be at home in the body and away from the Lord? Or away from the body and in the presence of the Lord. And it's really talking about the, the what is now and what is yet to come. And what is now we are in the body and we don't experience God's presence in its fullness in the way that we will when we are face to face with Him. In the way that we, are, we will when we are in his eternal kingdom. That is something that is yet to come. And so, and so we are still in this body. But what is this crazy new life thing? What, what does this mean exactly? Well, crazy new life means living by faith in what is to come instead of by sight of what already is. 
crazy new life means living by faith in what is to come instead of by sight in what already is. Now, we hear this all the time. We hear this idea, you know, I live by faith, not by sight. And people throw this, this verse around, and, and I think they forget the context that it's written in. And what's really going on here, because this, this word faith has been hijacked, quite frankly, by culture. A lot of people in culture have taken the word faith and, and, and made it mean something it is not intended to mean. As a matter of fact, I think I've mentioned it one, one other time in a sermon, but there's a, there's, a, there's a book out there by a guy named Peter Boghossian who is a, an atheist philosopher. He's a college professor, and he, he wrote a book, and, it's, and he calls—I'm uh, forgetting the title of the book right now, but he calls his process in the book— uh, street epistemology. Maybe you've, you've even heard this once or twice. Somebody saying, I do street epistemology. And basically, it's, it's how to create atheists. That's what the book's about. It's like the evangelism book for atheists. <laughs> In other words, not to convert atheists to Christianity, but for atheists to ver- convert Christians or Muslims or whatever else into atheists. That's what the book is about. It's, it's, it's very evangelistic, if you will, but in all the wrong ways. And, I, and I, I read the book a number of years ago, and as I read it, I was like, I was like man, if you, flip this up, if you flip this upside down, like this could be written, some of this stuff could be said by Christians if you kind of turn it backwards. There is an attack on, on our faith. There is an attack on Christianity. There always will be. There always has been because there is a real Satan and he doesn't like Jesus and he doesn't want Jesus to, to be victorious. He doesn't want people to be successful in their faith and to grow in their faith and to grow in likeness of Christ. Satan does not want those things. So he attacks Christianity and he uses uh, people like Peter Boghossian. And here's what, here's what Peter Boghossian does. And he calls it street epistemology. Epistemology is a fancy word that uh, philosophy word that says how, how you know it's the, the study of how you know things and he basically says this that Christians and other like, others like them he does talk about other religions but mostly Christians and, and he says Christians will, will they'll, they'll have faith and so basically all you have to do is, is, is show them that their faith is like this wishful thinking that's all faith really is Faith is just this idea that they come up with because they don't like the reality of the way things are, and so they have wishful thinking about the way things ought to be or they want things to be, but they have really no foundation for that faith. That's the gist of what he writes in this book. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it's Peter Boghossian that that came up with this. I think this idea that that's what faith is has been around a long time. In fact, I think it's infiltrated our churches. I think a lot of Christians think that's what faith is. I think a lot of Christians run around, you say, I just got to have faith. In other words, what they're, what they're saying is, I don't really have any need to have any reason to do or to think or to believe what, what I do think or believe. I just have to have faith. Can I just tell you that that is not what the Bible presents to us as faith? When it talks about faith and when it talks about hope, it is not talking about something without any kind of foundation, without any good reason to believe it. It's very much talking about a God who has interacted in this universe, and if God has interacted with us in this universe, then there ought to be evidence of it. And there is. There's good evidence of it. There's all kinds of evidence. We're not going to go into all the details right now. As a matter of fact, this fall, we're going to do kind of an apologetic series and we'll answer some of these questions in more detail. But my point this morning is that sometimes we use this verse, verse 7, 
we use it as kind of that way. We say, well, I live by faith, not by sight. In other words, what we're really saying is, is I can't possibly see how this is a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyways because I'm living by faith. That's not living by faith. That's a misuse of the, te- misuse of the text. It's a total misuse of what Paul is talking about. We do live by faith and not by sight, but Paul is talking about an already not yet kind of thing. You see, the, the, the time and the space and the place that we live in is the time, the space, and the place of faith. Why? Because we still look forward to something we cannot see. That doesn't mean we don't have good reason to think that it's coming. We absolutely 100% do. We have great reason to think that it's coming because Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just go to the cross and die. If that's the end of the story, then it's just another person who died on a cross along with thousands of others at that time. He didn't just get buried in a grave because if he is, he's one of, I don't even know how many, millions who got buried in graves. Big deal. People die and get put in graves all the time. What makes Jesus different is that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And it's not a fairy tale. It's not something we made up. It's something we have good evidence for. People saw him alive. They interacted with him. They, they, they said, I won't believe unless I can see the wounds and put my fingers in his wounds like Thomas said. And then he believed. Why? Because he saw the wounds. Jesus didn't just go to the cross and die. He didn't just go to the grave and get buried. He rose again to new life. And we too look forward to new life. But at the moment, we live in the realm of faith. Living by faith because we have not yet gone to be in the very presence of God in that way. That's the realm of sight. The realm of sight is yet to come. But it is coming. We live in the realm of faith. The hope that we have isn't wishful thinking. The hope that we have is based on the promises of God. And God has been faithful in fulfilling all of his promises up until this point. And because he's been faithful in fulfilling all of his promises up to this point, we can look forward and say that he will continue to be faithful and fulfill all of the promises that yet have yet to be fulfilled. That's good reason to have hope. That's why we live by faith, right? What does it look like to walk by faith and not by sight? Well, here's the the great thing. Paul actually answers the question for us in verse 9. He says this. So we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, right? Whether we are still in this fallen body that's been impacted by sin or we are in the presence of God our, our goal is to please him verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for things done while in the body whether good or bad so what does it look like to walk by faith and not by sight our goal is to please God regardless of whether we are in his presence or not now here's this thing we come to this text And we talk a lot about grace. And we talk a lot about faith. And we talk a lot about forgiveness. And we talk a lot about receiving salvation through faith and through grace. And then we come to this passage and it says that we will stand before the the judgment seat of Christ and be judged according to what we did, works, 
well in the body. This might be a little bit confusing. You might be going, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by grace and not by works. That's true. That's absolutely true. But there's an important message here, and there's a, an important reason why Paul includes this. What's often called, maybe you've heard it, the, the Bema seat the Bema seat of Christ or the Bema seat of judgment, right? It's a, it's a Greek word talks about this. It doesn't really matter that much except to say this, that, that there is a judgment that we will all stand before God. Every one of us will stand before God. Whether we are followers of Christ or not, we will stand before God and there will be judgment and there is a sense in which it will be according to our works. And there is another sense in which it will be according to what Christ has done in us and for us. In other words, when it comes to our salvation, the judgment will be, have you received the righteousness of Christ? That's what happens. When you, when you say, I trust Christ, I put my faith and trust in him, I believe not only that he went to the cross, that he died, but that he rose again. He was the eternal divine son of God who conquered sin and death, and I have put my faith in him. And because of that, it, I don't have a righteousness that I have accomplished, but I receive the righteousness given to me by Christ. That's God's grace. So that we can stand before God, and God looks at us, and he sees that righteousness, and, 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 and salvation is guaranteed in that. But there is also an accounting that takes place for what we do in the body. See, our actions do matter. Sometimes we get confused. We think, oh, I, I, said, I said a prayer one time when I was at Bible camp or, or when I was at VBS or when I was at whatever. You know, I went down the aisle and, or, or whatever the case might have been or I raised my hand or, or my Sunday school teacher or my parents or my whatever, you know, said this prayer with me and we call it sometimes the sinner's prayer. And we go, well, I, I said that prayer and then... You know, that was years and years ago. But then, they, then we go out and we live however we want. And there's no reflection of an actual decision made to follow Christ based on what we do. Now, I'm not suggesting that once you put your faith and trust in Christ, that from that point on it's works. I'm not saying that at all. It's always grace. It's always grace. But there ought to be a transformation of our heart, a change in our heart that motivates us towards obedience with Jesus Christ. In other words, our, our life should change. And if our life doesn't look any different before from after, if there's no difference, if there's no distinction, then you might want to look in the mirror and go, I don't know if I've really decided to follow Jesus or not. I'm not trying to cast doubt but I am saying that there is a judgment that is to come. There is an accounting. And Paul says that this accounting comes and we stand before God and, and we receive salvation by grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but we always forget verse 10. It's so that we can do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. That's verse 10, by the way. So if you're going to memorize 8 and 9, it'd be pretty good. At least have a pretty good idea what's in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, Okay. We come back and we, we come to here and, and Paul goes, hey, there's a, there's a judge and it's Jesus and we will stand before him. We live, we need to live as if we will stand before God and give an account for how we lived in the body in the realm of faith so that we will receive what we are due. In other words, we need to begin to live as if Jesus will judge us because he will. Who is your judge? 
It's an important question as we live life day to day. Who is your judge? It's not Pilate. Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate had the audacity to think that he was somehow in charge, that he would somehow judge in that circumstance. But he was only there, and he was only able to do what he did because God allowed it. It's not, it's not Pilate. You will not stand in front of the judge at Corinth to be judged. You will not stand in front of, of, of Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, as Paul did in Acts chapter 18. When the Jews in Corinth brought charges against Paul because he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus, you will probably not stand before the Supreme Court of the United States of America and be judged by them. You will probably not be judged by them, but you will be judged by Jesus. And this ought to cause you to pause, to stop for a second and consider the implications of that. The question is this, do you care more about how you will be judged by Jesus or do you care more about how you will be judged in the court of public opinion? Do you care more about what Jesus will say about you when you stand before him or do you care more about whether your friends on Facebook give you a bunch of likes or not? Do you care more about what Jesus will say about you or do you care more about what your coworkers will say about you? In other words, you have to make a decision about who you want to judge you, but you cannot choose that it will not be Jesus because it will be Jesus. Everybody else you can choose. Everybody else you can say, you might have to stand before him. You might have to stand in front of him. They can say whatever they want, but at the end of the day, that when that day comes, you will stand before Jesus Christ, and he is the ultimate judge. And that will be an eternal judgment. That's why Colossians 3.17 is so important when it says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it what? All in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God the Father through Him. If you're asked to do something immoral at work, you say no. If you have to risk being fired, you do what's right in God's eyes. If you have to risk being thrown in prison or tortured, you do what's right in God's eyes because he is the ultimate judge. And whatever present afflictions we face, they are present, but they are temporary. And we look forward to the glory of God. So crazy new life means living by faith in what is to come instead of by sight of what already is. We will get to the realm of sight, but in the the meantime, we live in the realm of faith. And so that's how we live. We live by faith. But there is more. Verse 11. Since then, we know that what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Why do we know what it is to fear the Lord? Because of the judgment seat. Because we will stand before God. We have to make that connection here. The fear of the Lord is not some idea. Sometimes we, we explain the fear of the Lord away too much. When we read about the fear of the Lord in Scripture, and it's, and it's in many places throughout all of Scripture, you find this phrase about, about the fear of the Lord, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of righteousness, or, or things like that. And you see it, and, and people will go, well, that just means a, a deep awe and respect. No, it doesn't. It means fear. Otherwise, they would translate it respect, and then it would mean Respect. Right? Trust your translation. 
Right? They get it right almost all the time. Not, they're not perfect. It's just a translation, right? But, but they get it. It's, it's fear. Why? Because there's a judgment seat. And we stand before it. And there will be accounting. And God will... I think, I, I think what happens, and people argue about exactly what happens at this, but here's what I kind of think happens. I think God kind of replays everything for you. I think he kind of gives, there's an accounting. Here's your life while in the body. And we will be deeply embarrassed about the things we ought to be deeply embarrassed about. And we will feel, and we will feel the, the conviction of the things that we ought to feel conviction about. And we will feel the rejoicing and the joy of the things we ought to feel rejoicing and joy about. And there's, there's a reflection on the life that is given. And there's an accounting to what we have done in the body. That doesn't mean we, we don't have salvation. It just means that there's a moment of accounting. And then God says, but here's my grace. And then we enter into an eternal kingdom with him. And we rejoice in the grace that we've received. we got to fear the Lord. Why? Because there's judgment. Verse 13, he goes on. If we are out of our mind, as some say. See, that, that word crazy was put in there for a reason. And here it is, right here. Just in case you thought I was just trying to use adjectives. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are out of our right, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Crazy new life means being compelled by the crazy love of Christ. Crazy new life means being compelled by the crazy love of Christ. Here's the thing. If your life, if people look at your life and, and, and they go, wow, you just look like the rest of the world, and there's no, there's no distinction, there's no difference, that you're not peculiar in some way, you're not odd to the rest of the world in some sense, then then you're not compelled by the love of Christ. You're not living in the crazy new life that God has given you. You're not embracing it. If you look just like everybody else, if you embrace the values of this world, you, you just welcome them into your mind and into your heart and into your family and into your home and into your life and into your work and into all those things. You just go, I'm just going to live like the rest of the world. Then can I just tell you, you're not following Jesus. I was with some friends last night and uh and uh some friends from the gym and things and 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 one of them swore in front of me it was pretty funny um he he uh he he used god's name in vain we'll just put it that way I, you know i'm trying to figure out how to, how to explain this without like breaking some kind of sin rule or something you know in, in church right but he, it's funny because he, he swore they're at my house and he swore and then he looked at me and he said he said oh i'm sorry and I just started laughing. <laughs> because I'm like, well, you didn't use my name in vain, man. <laughs> but, you know, but, it, but there is a, there's, a, there's an understanding, right, that he has. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. I think he's probably agnostic or something. You know, probably doesn't have a real conviction regarding the existence of God. And so, you know, I, I like to have those people at my house and spend time with them because, because I want them to love Jesus. I want them to know the good news of Jesus Christ, right? 
And so he was there, and so, but it, it, it was just one of those moments where I just, I just laughed. I, I go, dude, you didn't, you didn't use my name in vain. I'm not the one you need to say sorry to. But why did he say that? It was never because I have condemned them about their language. As a matter of fact, quite frankly, they used a lot of other words that night that they probably weren't good for polite conversation. I didn't say anything about them. I, I, didn't, I didn't like, hey, stop that. You know, I didn't, I didn't jump down their throats. They just, why did they, why do they look at me? Well, okay, they do know I'm a pastor, but there's something different. I behave differently than they do. I do. Now, I'm not perfect. Believe me, I got my faults and my sins. Trust me. Just ask my wife. No, don't ask my wife. But my point is this, that there, there is a difference. There ought to be a distinction. People ought to know. There ought to be something peculiar, something odd, something weird about how you live because you don't embrace the values of this world. If you look just like the world, you are not living the crazy new life compelled by the love of Christ because the gospel itself is crazy. Think about this. We believe in an eternal God, a divine being who created the universe. Not only did he create the universe, he sent his son down into the universe. He's eternal divine son of God into the universe who walked among us. He went to a cross. He shed blood. He gave his life. He died so that our sins could be forgiven. This is weird. It's crazy. And not only that, but then we believe that he rose from the dead. I mean, who believes that he rose from the dead? People don't rise from the dead. But he did. It's crazy. And then we say things like, we should take up your cross and follow Jesus. What? That's weird. doesn't make it untrue. It just makes it not accepted. See, our lives were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ, which means our lives are lived for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let me put it a different way. Our lives were purchased by the, by the love of Jesus Christ, which means our lives are representative of the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross out of love, compelled by love. Paul did his ministry compelled by love. We follow Jesus compelled by the love that we find in the gospel. Compelled by it. Moment by moment, day by day, driven by the love of Jesus Christ that he has shown us. So that we can obey the greatest commandment, which is what? Love God. And what's the second? Love others. We are compelled by God's love. Our lives are to be measured by our love for God and our love for others. In fact, that's what our mission statement, Grace, is. In part, love God, love others, make disciples. That's our mission statement. It's really simple. It's the mission statement of the entire church. Now, I don't mean just all of Grace Church. I mean the entire church, the worldwide church. Jesus gave it to us in Matthew chapter 28. And, 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 and in the great commandment, right? Love God, love others, make disciples. Those are the three things. The greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, and, and the mission, the cause, the vision that he gave us that we would reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. That's our mission. It's given to us by God. This means every one of us is called to do exactly that. Every one of us, loving God, is what we do when we participate in his mission, when we commune with him, when we obey him, when we disciple others. That is what every one of you is called to. Paul goes on, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. 
All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Listen to this. You ready? Verse 20. You ready? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin, that's Jesus, so that in him, we, that's us, might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Can I just be honest? There's so much in this passage. It was so hard to put a sermon together for this. I was like, oh my goodness. Like if I was like teaching this, I would take like 18 weeks to go through this phrase by phrase because it's so rich. But I don't get 18 weeks. I get, I need to be done pretty soon. Crazy new life means proclaiming new life to a dying world. Crazy new life means proclaiming new life to a dying world. Can I just be really forthright with you for a moment? I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor a long time. Been in ministry a long time. I want to do the math. It makes me sound too old. I am not the one who will reach the world to Jesus. Pastors are not the people who will do that. You know who will reach the world for Jesus? You. You will reach the world for Jesus. I have a very limited circle of influence. And quite frankly, the majority of that is right here. When I go to work, I work with Christians, I think. I'm pretty sure about most of them. Right? Like I, I, I'm surrounded by people who believe in Jesus, who have received the gospel I'm sur- all the time. My family, I'm pretty sure we all love Jesus. I'm pre- pretty sure. Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not the judge, but, you know, we work hard at that. And, I, 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 you know, my daughter loves Jesus. Her husband loves Jesus. My wife loves Jesus. My, my son, I think, loves Jesus. I, I, I love Jesus. Like, I follow, we, we seek to follow him, right? Like, I, I have to intentionally find ways to get outside the church and be around people who, who need the gospel, who need, who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I do. And I just told you about one of the ways I do that. It's intentional. It's on purpose. I cannot reach the world for Jesus. Pastors are not the ones. You are the ones. You are the ones. I think Scott Halfman Hoffman, I'm not sure how you say his name. He commented on this passage. And I think I quoted him last week. I'm quoting again this week. He says this, Our God is so small. Our sense of self is so large. We fear God so little that we seldom sense the seriousness of our sin. And we, sen- and we sense the seriousness of our sin so little that we seldom fear God. Within this vicious circle our most pressing felt need is not for reconciliation with God because of our sin, but for reconciliation with ourselves because of our low self-esteem. It's a sad state of affairs. It really is. Our sin, we need to understand the significance and the power of it, the destructive power of it. 
what it has done to us, what it has done to this world, what it has done to people around us. And when we begin to understand that, and we begin to understand the bigness of God, the significance of God, the greatness of a God who extended grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, bringing good news to a world in desperate need of it, then we all of a sudden realize that we are so small, but the need for the gospel is so great. And yet God says, you are my ambassador. You proclaim, I proclaim the gospel through you, through me. We together as the body of Christ proclaim the gospel. Confessing Christ means nothing if it is not matched by embracing a crazy new life for Christ. Can you see it? Just close your eyes for a second. Can you see it? Can you, can you see beyond the horizon? Can you see past it? Or only, are you only capable of seeing the horizon itself? picture an actual horizon in your mind. The horizon lies to you, right? It's that place where the sky meets land that you see off in the distance, but it doesn't exist. If you chase it, you will never arrive. It's, it's the wrong thing to focus on. You look to, the, you look to live the rest of your days in relative ease, you'll find that dream fleeting as well. Open your eyes. Can you see it? Can you see the glory of God, even a glimpse of it? Can you see eternity future? Can you see being in the presence of God, seeing Jesus face to face, face to face? But there's something to see, and I wonder if you see it this morning. It is that which is beyond. Have you or have you not received the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That's the first question. If you have not, you need to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because you don't have any of your own. Second, You and I will be judged for what we did in the body. It is not an eternal judgment, but an accounting nonetheless of the life we lived, whether good or bad. So here's what I want to leave you here this morning. You ready? Live a life focused on Jesus, compelled by the crazy love of Jesus that proclaims the message of Jesus. I'm going to read it again. Live a life focused on Jesus, compelled by the crazy love of Jesus that proclaims the message of Jesus. And start today, and tomorrow, and this week, and this month. Begin to have those people in your mind. Who are you praying for? Who are you sharing the love of Jesus with? The gospel message. Are you proclaiming it because you love Jesus so much? Because you're looking beyond this life? Because you have an internal perspective, which they desperately need? Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your grace and your glory. For all that you have done, Lord, you are good and mighty and loving, and we worship you. Lord, this morning as we think about what it is to live out of our mind, but it's behalf, on behalf of you, to live a life that is crazy, that is peculiar, that is odd to the world, not because we want to be odd, but because we want to be right. We want to be found in the truth of the gospel because at the end of the day, it is better to be on your side than anybody else's side because ultimately it is not any judge of this world that will judge us, but it is your judgment that will judge us. Lord, help us to live in fear of you, but in the comfort and peace and goodness that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that we have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to continue worshiping this morning by remembering the sacrifice, remembering that that righteousness was imputed to us uh, through his death, his uh, resurrection for us. And so um, as we continue worshiping this morning, um, we have the station set out for you. If you need the help, just raise the card and the ushers will help you out with that.